in First Chronicles chapter 20, Jeff talked about what we need to do to enter the battle. Like, how do we need to prepare ourselves, right? We played a uh, game, and, and then he, we sat down and, and had a devotion. Um, and so some of us, this last week, we prepared ourselves, and we entered the battle, and we were victorious. Who had a victorious battle this week? <clears throat> yeah? Some of us did not prepare. We probably forgot, or we were distracted, whatever. And then we got wiped out, completely just like tackled in the backfield, like blindsided. Who got blindsided this week? I mean, be honest. We got a little blindsided. So, in chapter 20, we saw that David did not prepare himself, and he was defeated. And in chapter 21, we're going to see that David was once again defeated, but we're going to see how he repented. And for your study purposes, 1 Chronicles 21, and you might write this like next to your chapter title, 20, 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24 are parallel chapters, right? It's two different people telling the same story, okay? So, 1 Chronicles 21. Make sure I get the right click. Okay. David numbers Israel and Judah. In 21 verse 1 it says, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And so what do you think it means to number Israel? To count. Yeah, it's pretty... Were any of you guys... Do you guys remember the last census that was taken? No. It was like this big like political thing about who could take the census and who couldn't. But... People, we had papers you had to fill out and send it in. And some people actually had people come around to their house and like fill out information, but they took a census. And what we're seeing here, though, was that David was provoked because in 24, in 2 Samuel 24, 1, says that again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. And we don't know why the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel in this in this area. At least I couldn't find it anywhere in the Bible. It could be there. But I couldn't find it. And a lot of scholars don't know. But it doesn't necessarily matter why, why, the, why he was angered. Um, but he did move David against him. So, one thing you need to look at is that, first off, this is one of, the, one of four times in the Old Testament that Satan's name, Satan, is actually mentioned as actively working against Israel. We're actively moving against a person. One out of four times that he openly opposes. So if you think about that, how, how much is Satan mentioned in the Bible? In one respect or another. A lot. But yet in the Old Testament, this is only one of four times. That's actually kind of important to know. He's not overt. right? He's not obvious about all his attacks. Right? He's not always going to be in his form, standing up before you saying, Seth, don't read your Bible. Go to school angry. He doesn't say that. He just lets you do that on your own. Right? We don't need him always to, to screw up on stuff. Um, but God did not make David sin. So even though it says that God moved David against Israel, God didn't make David do anything, right? We have free will. God allowed David to do it. 
So you have the choice to, to say, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. God doesn't make you do it. He just allows the opportunity for it to happen. Okay. So it's just like, I cannot, I'm a police officer. I cannot arrest someone if I force them to commit a crime. Does that make sense? Like if I say, Jeff, I'm going to hold you at gunpoint and make you go rob that store. And then when you get done robbing the store, I'm going to arrest you. I can't do that. So that's entrapment. You can't do that. Like God isn't making David sin. So in James 1, 13 through 15, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So don't think that God's working against you, right? Don't think that you're like, man, I'm having a really rough day. God must really be out to get me today because everything's hard. Everything sucks. My teachers don't like me. My friends don't like me. I'm getting picked on at school. This homework. I have to write seven pages single-spaced. Oh, this is the worst. Do you guys do single-spaced? Double-spaced? You know why it's double-spaced? It's not so that it makes your paper longer. It's so that they have more room to write what you've done wrong. <laughs> so, don't think... It also makes the paper longer, but it doesn't make it better. So, don't think that God is working against you. Romans eight twenty eight says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. So David said, we're going to number the people of Israel. And he sent Joab. You guys remember Joab? One of the sons of Zeruiah. He's his first commander. He's the leader over the army. David sends Joab to do this work. But, but Joab knew that the census was wrong. It says in verse 3 of chapter 21, And Joab answered, The Lord make his people in hundred times so many more as they be. But my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then doth my lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? In first in Second Samuel twenty four it says, God add unto the people how many soever they be an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord delight in this thing? Joab saying, you don't need to do that. God adds to to the people. We don't need to go. At, we don't need to take a census. But in, or, but let's find out why it was wrong. So it doesn't seem like a bad thing that you're numbering the people. Like, every day we count how many people are in here. Like, it's not a big deal. You're just wondering. I think. So, why was it wrong? I'm not sure. Not positive. Because, again, it doesn't say why. But, we can look at Scripture for clues. And in Exodus 30, 12-16, it says... This is God talking to Moses. When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. This they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel, that's a form of currency, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. And it says a shekel is 20 geras. I think, I think I read it was like 15 cents or 50 cents or something like that, like super cheap. Uh, a half shekel shall be offered to the Lord. Everyone that passeth among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above 
shall give an offering unto the Lord. So the only number of people who are 20 and above. The rich, so you guys, sorry, you guys wouldn't be taken in the census. But the rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than a shekel, when they give an offering unto the Lord, to make an atonement for your souls. And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your soul. So we're, he's given direction on how to do the census, right? They're told to do this thing. Only number of people 20 and above. And they're supposed to pay half a shekel. And so we can only deduce that something happened and he didn't follow the prescribed method. Or he did it in his pride. Because at this point in Israel... There was peace in the land, and Israel was thriving. And maybe he was like, man, my kingdom's looking pretty good. Let's find out how many people we actually have in our kingdom. Let's, let's figure that out. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So like, if he had done the census, but he didn't realize it was wrong, maybe it wasn't sin to him. But if he knew that, if he, had no, if he knew better, it's like when your parents are like, you know you're not supposed to do that. You know better. But you did it anyways. Like, oh, he's just watching TV. Yeah, you knew better because it's after 10 o'clock. It's sin. Might not be sin at 9.59, but at 10 o'clock it's sin. So if he knew better and he did it anyways, maybe that's why he did it. Maybe that's why it was considered a sin. But it says here that even though it was wrong, Joab still obeyed. And why did he do that? Let's read Ecclesiastes 8. 2 through 6, which says, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God, to regard it as an oath of God, to regard it as the word of the Lord. It says, Where the word of a king is, there is power, and who may say unto him, What doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing, and a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment, therefore the misery of man is great upon him. Man, if a king gives you a command, you're supposed to obey. That's, that's kind of crazy. Because it seems counterintuitive to obey the king when he's said to do something wrong. Does that make sense? There was another time that Joab did that too. Uh, David was in sin. There was two major sins, two major sins in the Old Testament about David. The first one was, what do you think? Second Samuel 11. Bathsheba, yeah. And so with that, David looked on Bathsheba. was like, I want that man's wife for, for my own. He took her, laid with her, got her pregnant. Was like, oops, let's bring her actual husband in. Right? Let's have them lay together. Let's have them have sex. Act like he impregnated her and not me. And then, you know, it'll just be our little secret. So he brings Uriah in from the battle, from the war says, hey, dude, uh, you, you deserve a little time off. Go with your wife. And Uriah's like, nope, I'm not doing that. I have responsibilities. I'm going to lay outside here until it's time, outside of your temple, or your uh, palace, until it's time to go back to the battle. And David's like, all right, well, that's, that didn't work, so let's try getting him drunk. All right? So he gives him lots of wine and tries to, tries to force him into his wife. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that. So David actually does a very disturbing thing. He, he, light, he writes a letter to Joab and says, Hey, send Uriah the Hittite to the hottest part of the, ba- of the battle 
so that until he's dead. And then he uses Uriah to carry his own death sentence, delivers it to Joab. And I don't think Joab was very happy about this. Because if you read in 2 Samuel 11, it says, And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him. Abandon him. Leave him by himself. Um, abandon him, and that he may be smitten and die. And then verse 25 says, Then David said unto the messenger, so this is after Uriah's died, Joab sends the messenger with instructions, and David hears from the messenger, and his response to the messenger is, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. So he was discouraged through this. And rightly he should be, because he was used in a very heinous crime that was quite despicable. But he still obeyed the word of the king. It's weird. So, we see later on in the chapter that God, because of this census, punishes David and Israel. And God is displeased with David. It says in verse 7, And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he, therefore he smote Israel. And to smote something, in this case, means to punish. So he punished Israel. He stricken them. He smacked them upside their collective heads. Right? In 2 Samuel 24.10, it says, And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. So David's heart smote him. You know, he was stricken, he was wounded in his heart. Have you guys ever been convicted? Like maybe you accidentally hit someone in the eye and they get a black eye and you're like, ooh. Or you accidentally say something and you're like, oh, man, that was so mean and rude. And it hurt their feelings and now they're crying and I feel like crap. You guys ever done that? Yeah. And so David recognized in this that he had conviction, right? He recognized his conviction. He recognized that inward feeling of, oh, I did something wrong. His heart smote him and he felt conviction. But, conviction isn't enough because with conviction you also have to have obedience okay obedience is required and in john 8 3 through 9 it says and the scribes and pharisees brought unto him talking to jesus or brought unto jesus a woman taken in adultery and when they had set her in the midst they say unto him master this woman was taken in adultery in the very act now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Because they're trying to trick him. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So he's surrounded by these guys, and he's writing in the dirt. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them. Have you guys ever read... The words of Jesus and like wondered what the inflection in the voice is like, like wh- how he phrases things, what word he like pauses on or emphasizes. I wonder that all the time. So he said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. You guys heard that before? He without sin cast the first stone. 
It's a way of someone saying, well, I can do what I want. Because you have sinned too. Don't be judging me. But Jesus said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. So each one of those people who came to, to um, cast their stone at this woman realized they had sin, were convicted in their conscience, in their brains, realized that they had done something wrong. And so they, they were like, okay, you win this round, and, they, and then they left. So they had a conscious conviction, but they didn't have repentance, right? So further on the chapter, the next two verses, it says, When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. No one has convicted me. No one has cast their stone at me. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So with that conviction, you also have to have the action, right? Because you can be convicted and feel bad about calling someone a jerk, but if you don't apologize about it, then you're not actually repenting, right? You're just feeling bad. I feel bad about all kinds of stuff, but I probably don't always apologize for everything that I've done wrong. So you have to have obedience with your conviction. And so we see that David does seek forgiveness and mercy. In, in verse 8 of 1 Chronicles 21, it says, uh, This is David confessing his sin. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. That's a pretty good forgiveness asking. I don't. I don't know how many times, I, I'm not asking for verification, Christina, but I don't know how many times I've said, Christina, I'm sorry, I have acted very foolishly. She's, she's biting her lips, she's trying not to say anything, she's laughing. <laughs> Sometimes it's a given, like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm stupid. I've probably said that more than anything, but, you know, it's a pretty good apology, I think. And if you see that in verse 8, David wants his sin to be taken away. He's like, man, just, just do away with it. Just forget like it ever happened. In Samuel 51, 1 through 2, this is David's uh, cry to the Lord after he's been caught with Bathsheba and their whole situation happened. This is him talking to the Lord. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Remove it. Cover it up. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he wants his sin completely taken away. First uh, John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before we can be cleansed, we have to confess. And that's what David's trying to do. But David had 10 months to repent. Because it says in 2 Samuel 24, 8, that Joab, as he led the census, says when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. That's a long time to take a census. It's almost 10 months. 
So he had a chance to repent. And so we notice that David was convicted and he asked for forgiveness before judgment came. So with Bathsheba, judgment was upon him and he felt bad. This time, at least he's learned to seek forgiveness before the judgment. So a lot of times we get caught in our sin. We're like, eh, it'd be fine. Oh, Lord, I I shouldn't do that, you know, but whatever. And then your parents catch you and you're like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Please. Mercy. So you're asking forgiveness beforehand. But how many times do we actually like, oh, man, I screwed up. I need to go apologize right now. I know I might get in trouble later, but I need to go bring it to their attention now and let them know. You probably do that like when you like dent the car or something. But if it's something you think you can get away with, we don't say anything, do we? We just, we, we burn our report cards. Well, I used to burn my report cards. Like you, you guys probably can't do them now because it's electronic. Yeah, you get it in the mail and you're like, he's never going to see this. Gone. I don't know why you get midterm, mid, midterms this, this time. I don't know. <laughs> Crazy. But if he finds out that I burned it because my sister told on me, well, then I'm in a lot of trouble. But if I know that she's going to tell him, maybe I circumvent her glee and happiness and tattling on me, and I go tell him myself, hoping that the judgment is less, right? So he did ask for forgiveness before judgment came. And then, but there was judgment. And that judgment is a consequence of sin. And this is weird. This is so weird. This is really, really strange, guys. David gets to choose his own judgment. That's crazy. Let's read 1 Chronicles 21, 9 through 12. And the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, the guy that's talking through Gad is um, the prophet, hearing God, talking to David, delivering God's message. Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose, choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and said unto him, this is the next morning after he realized he had done wrong. Thus saith the Lord, choose thee either three years famine, or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. Man, that's, that's a weird, hard choice. So they were already in a famine. Because if you read in Second Samuel, it says seven years famine. Well, they were in a three years famine because of the Gideonites. And then they were in a famine during the census. And then three years more famine. So he's like, mm, maybe not famine. That sounds bad. So he had three choices. Which one would you pick? Pestilence, plague. What? Like the plague. Like the Black Death. Yeah, it's only three days. Okay, so you have three years famine, right? There's no food growing, right? Three months, like, hounded by their, their foes. It says that, that they're chasing after them with the sword. So they're on the run three months, nonstop battles. 
getting routed. I mean, they're just fleeing before their enemies, getting killed. Or three days pestilence. <laughs> but it's the angel of the Lord wielding the sword of the Lord. I don't know. I think in our ignorance, we might, I might pick the third one because it's like, hey, it's just a sword. Yeah, it's not that big a deal. Well, David chooses to put his trust in the Lord. He says in verse 13, he says, And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. This is a great problem. I don't know what to do, but let me fall now into the hand of the Lord. Very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So he doesn't want more famine. He doesn't want to be chased by his enemies. He wants three days with the angel of the Lord wielding the sword because he trusts in the Lord. And so pestilence falls upon Israel. So the Lord sent pestilence unto Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. But if you look in how... um, Census, the census is done, how people are numbered. They always only count the men 20 and older, right? Like when they say they, like when they fed the 5,000, they only counted the men. They didn't count the women and the children. So there might have been more than 70,000 dead. It could have been 70,000 plus women and children. It could be 70,000 families. I don't know. It doesn't say, but I'll tell you what, 70,000 people, that's a lot. A lot, a lot of people. In Second Samuel twenty four fifteen says, So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed, and there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba seventy thousand men. So all over Israel there were seventy thousand deaths. So David repents. This is his repentance. First Chronicles twenty one, sixteen and seven. David takes personal responsibility for his actions. Step one, take responsibility. David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. And you know, I got, I got caught up in trying to find a visual representation of the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Israel. That doesn't look very scary, does it? Does it? I mean, I, I can't really see like distance, but it looks like he's pretty like a So I looked. So I did a Google image search, and I searched "angel of the Lord destroying angel, uh, angel Jerusalem," like any any variation of anything in that that would seem to bring up an image that should incite terror in your eyes. And you know what? There was nothing. Nothing. Like, this might be creepy because of the way it's drawn and stuff. Like, like this guy, like this little hooked nose. and everything. Like, I don't know. But, but what it made me realize is that the Lord moves in ways that we cannot comprehend. And to see that was probably one of the most terrifying things 
ever to be seen. In fact, it says at the end of the chapter that David was so freaked out by this that he never went back to the tabernacle in Gibeon because he was so freaked out. He was like, nope, I'm good. I'm just going to stay away. So I'm sorry, that's that's the best picture I have. Yeah. So, David chooses to obey. God says, hey, go build an altar. The Lord commanded Gad to say to David, David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Because when the angel was coming up to Jerusalem to destroy it, God says, hold on. I think... I'm going to repent of what I'm doing. I want you to stay there. And that's when David and, and the, the leaders saw the angel and it freaked them out. And so the angel stood in a place called the threshing, the threshing floor. Now, the threshing, this is a threshing floor, right? It's just an area where they're taking the wheat and they're running over it with this skid or sled or whatever drawn by oxen. And it knocks all the wheat down, and so they just pick up the stalks. And everything that's left is wheat. And then later on, they take all that and they sift it to clean it. But this is the threshing floor, right? It's kind of a big area. And so the angel was standing in this area. When the angel came and stood in this area, Ornan, which maybe that's him, I don't know. No, he wouldn't be there. Maybe uh, he's probably a manager, so he's sitting down. That's probably him right there. Ornan sees the angel, they also, the family sees the angel standing there, and they fall on their faces, and they, they don't even move. Like, they just, they're so freaked out, they're just hiding. And then, David comes to him, Ornan approaches David, and David buys the threshing floor. And David said to Ornan, grant me the place of the threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. He's just obeying what the Lord said to do. Uh, Thou shalt grant it. To it, yeah, thou shalt grant it me for the full price that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee, take it. Let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. I will give thee the oxen also for the burnt offerings and the threshing instruments, the cart and stuff. You can have that for the wood to build the altar or to, to put on top of the altar and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. He's like, Dude, you can have all of it. I can obviously see you guys got something to work out. Just take what I have. Go ahead and do that. But the king said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. Because a sacrifice isn't a sacrifice until it's a sacrifice. Right? It is deep. It, anything worth having is worth buying. Anything worth worth obtaining is worth the cost of getting it, right? And so we see that the Lord answers. The Lord answers, and David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And he answered him from the heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. See, Ornan was trying to give David stuff, but it wasn't Ornan's sacrifice to give, right? That wasn't the sacrifice that was needed. What was needed was David's sacrifice. That's what God wanted. That's what God asked for. So that's why he paid the price to Ornan. And so, oops. And so God can use 
your circumstances. Right? God can use your circumstances for His good. And so we see that David's two major sins, right? David's sin with Bathsheba. Man, there was some bad stuff that came of that. His house never had peace. One of his sons took over the kingdom. One of his sons, that's, that son, slept with David's wives. Routed David. David was running in the wilderness away from him. But there was also good. Something good became of that. David and Bathsheba ended up having a second son, Solomon, who inherited the kingdom. Right? Their union brought Solomon above all the sons that he'd had before, and Solomon was the one to inherit the kingdom. In, in that time and place, that's kind of unheard of. Like You don't normally do that. You don't circumvent the elder and go to the junior. And then David's sin in numbering, there was bad. Okay, There were 70,000 dead. You think those people are happy with David because he did this? Oh, no. Before this, it said that everything that David did was right in the eyes of the people. That didn't happen after this. That, I mean, I have to say, if, if one of our leaders, like the president, the governor, anyone, anyone in our leadership did something that killed 70,000 of us Americans, I'd be pretty upset, right? I'd be pretty mad. I'd want some answers. And then David, I'm sure he had PTSD from seeing the angel standing over Jerusalem with the sword. I mean, if he's too freaked out to even go over there, I'm assuming he probably had some weird dreams. Right? But the good from that was that he built an altar and he bought land for the altar. And so what's crazy is that God used David's sin in these two situations for something that he turned to his good. God used Solomon, David's son, to build the temple of God on Ornan's threshing floor. So the area of land that they bought, the threshing floor, was where they built the temple that they used for 400 years. So before that, the tabernacle of God was a tent. They traveled with it for over 440 years. They traveled with a tent. They set it up every night. God's presence among the children of Israel was represented by a tent. And David wanted to build a permanent structure for the Lord. And he said, nope, you're not going to do that. Your son's going to do that. And then, 400, and then after 440 years, it's done. They finally build the temple of the Lord to have a permanent dwelling place among the children of Israel until Jesus came. That's a pretty significant thing. And you know what Jeff was talking about earlier with um, Abraham and Isaac? Did you know that the area where the temple of God is built, where Ornan's threshing floor is, is this exact same area where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac? Yeah. And just as Abraham stopped the, stopped the sacrifice, stopped the death of Isaac, God stopped the angel from destroying Jerusalem and made a memorial of that by building the temple and expanding the city. And then here's a picture of the temple. It's hard to find a really good representation of what the temple looks like because it got destroyed. But this was the center of um, worship in Israel, was this temple. And that came out of David's sin with Bathsheba, and it came out of David's sin of numbering the people. And could, David, and could God have done all that without David choosing wrong? Absolutely. 
but he still chose to use those circumstances to do good. And so some of us might be thinking, man, we're in sin and we are caught. We are caught in a snare. I can't get out of it. I've done something horrible. I've got jail time coming up. I've got parents going to wail on me when they find out what I've done. Man, you got something. You're, you're convicted and you don't know what to do. And there will be consequences. There will be consequences. And you're kind of freaked out about it. Or at least you should be. Others, like Joab, and in the 70,000, they were caught up in that sin. Like there's always collateral damage. So you might be thinking, what you're doing is okay. But what you're doing is maybe you're dragging along people with you. Maybe you're at school and you're cussing up a storm because you hate your math teacher. That jerk, he's a bad name and a curse word and and your friends are like yeah man i hate that guy and then you're like yeah and then you guys just like like you're bringing people along in your sin what if you're bringing one of your brothers in christ what if you're like dude i'm gonna go find some students in the high school class and let's go smoke some weed like let's go let's go light one up hey man hey jesse dude want to go smoke some weed come on it's good you like breathing? Oh, yeah, you breathe it in. Yeah, that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get caught, and then everyone gets found out. And everyone's in trouble. And your judgment is worse because you have caused others to fall with you. But man, through repentance, God can use that as a testimony. Because if you have gone through something like that, and you can stand up here and say, I screwed up, I did this thing. And led these people astray. But the Lord has turned my life around. And because of this, I have an understanding heart about what other people are doing. And I'm able to minister to them. Because I have a, an idea of what they've gone through. I know exactly how to minister to those people. So God can use your testimony for His greatness. Because you can choose that time to minister to people and bring them to Christ. But you can't do that if you don't repent. And you're just looking at a blank screen and you're just wondering what's going to happen. So that time between, between when mom says, dad's coming home at 530, you better look out. Go wait in your room. That is the worst. Because it's like, oh, is dad, am I going to get grounded? I don't know. Is he going to use the paddle? We had paddles in our house, man. They were like this thick. They had a strap around it so it wouldn't sling off the hand. Dad wore leather belts with a Jesus buckle. He had a Jesus fish buckle. Take it off. Pow. Man. I learned from some of those mistakes, but man, it was hard. Because in that time, that waiting, that was terrible. I didn't like it. But if you choose repentance now, if I had gone to my mother and said, Mom, Mom, I did something. Hey, guys, listen up. Mom, I did something. I shouldn't have done it. Please forgive me. I want to go find them and apologize. I need to do all that. My mom would have been like, okay, I'm disappointed, but let's, let's work this out. Instead, maybe that guy with the car with the mud pie on it that I threw at it, maybe he came back to the house. And maybe he knocked on the door while I'm hiding under the porch because I'm freaked out. And maybe he told my mom... 
It may be because that I had the worst whipping of my life. Maybe that happened. I don't know. I think she even brought me into my sister's room because it's bigger, and I think there was more room to swing. I don't know. I have my own bed. We walked right past my bedroom and went into her bigger room so that she had more room. Maybe that happened. I don't know. It could have. But So God's whipping you about something. You're going to get whipped on something. Going to get chastised. Going to get judgment. Pray for repentance now. Okay? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to depart. Lord, thank you for today. Um, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the examples of judgment. Um, thank you that, Lord, you've given us grace. Thank you that we can come to you and ask for forgiveness. And thank you that you give us mercy, that you don't treat us the way that we deserve. And I just ask, Lord, um, that your conviction is upon us, Lord, and that we would repent, that we would seek help, and that we would um, look to your word for help, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If I can, let's give uh, it Here's the deal, alright? So that's a heavy, hard message. I know that Philip doesn't like something. I know that. I know Philip, I know that he doesn't want to say, listen, you're in trouble. Dude, just give up. Because there are consequences. You know, as a parent, I never like having to enforce consequences for when my daughter disobeys me.